In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. It's playing baseball with your kid. It's fishing with your kid. It's uh, kicking the soccer ball with your kid. That's a whole nother level of existence right there. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute, salute you. you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and as you heard in the wonderfully synchronized sound of our co-host and producer dale culver what is the color today buddy the color is <laughs> yellow really that's disappointing well that's noah's favorite color so okay just threw that out there okay i think it'd wash out your your eyes so yes thank I don't you think that'd be good for you hey man i gotta tell you i'm really excited about today's guest this guy has a real passion uh, for helping men who are in the stress bubble helping these guys disciple their children. And he's actually developed a list that's in a book we're going to talk about that, to me, is highly impactful for men. So this list is really important. We're going to talk about it later on, so I'm excited to bring him on in just a bit. But before we do, do you have a man word for me today? I do. Discipling. I, I We've done that. Oh. Otherwise, I would have. Totally would have. Uh, I saw you staring at the cover. So I was thinking, like, on the back cover. Oh, Don't, my. Well, I, I'm... I'm just gonna let you go. Whose just, job is it to disciple? And so fa- that, that, fa- the father, fatherhood, so I was fathering, like, responsibility. Yes. So the, oh, so the word's responsibility. The word is responsibility. Talk me through it. You need to take responsibility for your family, uh, your household, and uh, and your wife. All those things. They're they're under your responsibility. And so there's going to come a day that you're going to stand at the pearly gates, and God's going to look at you and go, "I gave you a wife and." 20 kids or one kid or whatever, what did you do? And you're going to have to answer for that. I took him to church and let someone else teach him your word. Or I didn't even teach him anything. Actually, that's a quote right out of the book. That I, you Is it know. really? Yeah, there's a quote <laughs> uh, right out of his book, and I don't know if I can find it right now. Um, and in the final analysis... It is the responsibility of the family to transmit these holy lessons before it is the duty of the church and its programs. That is from page 24 in Matt's book, Discipleship in the Home. How do you like that? Yeah, boom. I told you I I read these books, man. It's important. You're good. So, hey, man, uh, do you have a review shout-out for me today? Yeah. uh, Goshi2. Thanks for uh, sending us a review. Thank you. And uh, if you hit us up, I'll shoot you off some swag. Got some going in the mail for some other guys today. So do that. Uh, that helps us, you guys. So please do go in there and give us a review. We'd love that. Yeah, that really does help a lot, guys. Sure do appreciate you guys getting in there and uh, saying some good stuff about us and moving us up through the ranks. So, hey, I want to brag about today's guest. It's my new friend, Matt Friedman. He is 60 years old, lives in Jackson, Mississippi, with his beautiful wife of 35 years, Mary. Uh, <clears throat> Matt has been a professor at Wesley Biblical Seminary for 32 years. He's the founding and current pastor of Dayspring Community Church and the author of multiple books, including today's book called Discipleship in the Home. Matt is also chaplain at a local prison as well as outside an abortion clinic. I bet that gets interesting. He's <laughs> definitely a man who is in the arena getting it done. So I want to welcome uh, uh, Matt Friedman to the show. Matt, how are you doing, man? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for the honor of being on your podcast today. Man, we're really excited to have you. So how's the weather in Mississippi? Oh, it's smothering. I don't know. You know <laughs> I, was, uh, I was raised in Kansas with dry heat. Now, it was hot, but also a 20-mile-an-hour wind every day. So you come down here, the heat's no longer dry. It's just, uh, you know, there's only so much fun you can have with humidity. That's what I say. Oh, and how long have you been in Jackson? Well, yeah, 30, 32 years. Oh, so you've been there 18. a long time. When did you plant the church? Well, about probably about 18, 18 and a half years ago. Oh, man, thanks so much for getting it done. That's awesome. Well, we're my wife and I went for a hike yesterday in a beautiful Oregon July, and we live for July in Oregon, and it was raining the entire time, and her hair got really frizzy, and mine... I don't have any hair. Yeah, it looks terrible. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, it's, uh, I'd rather, I don't know, man, I, I'm wanting the sun out here, but I'd rather have the rain than humidity. Oh, baby. I just am not a fan of, because I always, a beautiful day yesterday. I think humidity is synonymous to mosquitoes, but I don't know. I just have that feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, who knows, because you don't really care when you got sweat dripping off your, off your pinkies, you don't really care what the <laughs> flies are doing. I love Oregon, though, by the way. I have, uh, I've competed uh, at the great uh, track and field uh uh, uh, arena up there in Eugene. Hayward uh, Field. Hayward yes. Field. What'd you do? Yes. Well, I was a discus thrower and uh, hmm. made it, you know, we had a couple dual meets with Oregon, University of Kansas, where I went to school, had a couple of dual meets with with Oregon and then actually competed in the Olympic trials uh, oh, wow. up there. So, well, you look like a pretty lean looking dude. Give me your physical, <laughs> give me your physical <laughs> stats. What are your physical yeah, well, stats? Yeah, so lean. No, thank you. God bless you, and uh, suck up. You don't get any. You don't get any credit with God for lying. But uh, I, uh, I, I was. I'm a discus thrower, actually. That's what I was. Yeah, but you must be I, tall I then. Six one and a half. I was really didn't meet the profile. Uh, oh. I would just really fast in the ring and practice like crazy. So. Okay, give me your best throw. How far? So in in high school, I threw 198.11, which was third in the nation that year. Uh, when I was 21, uh, 1980, that was the year of the Olympic trials, which by the way, we didn't go to the Olympics that year because yeah. Jimmy Carter yeah. uh, said, let's not go. But I threw 202 feet, five inches with a bigger discus. And that was second in the nation that year. So, uh, in, in amongst the college, race. that is so impressive. <clears throat> I remember I played baseball my senior year, but I went out and did track just because I could. And I, I got second in our league, but my best discus throw was 163 or something. So when, you say, one, when you say 198, I'm like, that is legit. Did you throw the shot yeah. as well? I did not. I don't have arm strength. Uh, I have relatively long arms, and I was fast uh, through the rings. So that's kind of what made me a, oh, a decent thrower. I had no arm strength. I, I can't bench. I can't. I just I didn't have what it took to do a shot. I wish I could have because uh, it was a fun event. But the leverage what you must have in those arms. Well, hey, you've already told us a little bit about your story. Why don't you continue on and give our guys some context about your life and continue with your story, hobbies, things you like to do, just anything you feel like our guys need to know about you. Well, thanks. Yeah, listen, I uh, grew up in the in, in Kansas and uh, had a had a relationship with the Lord uh, through junior high and high school. Uh, went on to University of Kansas, uh, and uh, there, you know, kind of started hit the wander in the wilderness thing, you know, and, and, uh, I think the Lord really found me again, uh, in when I was 21. Uh, and I, I just went all the way, you know, uh, entirely consecrated my life to him, laid it all on the line. There were a couple issues that I didn't want to face up to. And I just said, I remember I heard a sermon actually it was on wandering the wilderness and I heard the preacher say, you got to make a choice. I felt like he's looking right at me. Of course, that's not yeah. what preachers do, but I felt like he's saying, Matt, you got a choice today. You can, possess the land, you can seize the land, or you can wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years of your life. And I just, I with tears in my eyes, I got in my little Volkswagen bug, went on home and uh, had to stop. I was, I was in tears. I said, I'm going to do it. There's these three things I don't want to, don't want to deal with. I'm, I'm dealing with them now. You can have it all. And uh, I'm going to tell you what's really interesting is this month is the 40 year anniversary of that moment. So wow, congratulations. I can I can say that Jesus, by his grace, didn't allow me to wander in the wilderness for four decades. What I love about what you just shared is you talked about these three things, 
And they're probably the same three things that most of us have dealt with. But I love how you did not celebrate those three things in your testimony. A lot of times guys brag about those three things. And I'm like, I'm ashamed of those three things. So I appreciate it because it's about what Jesus not only did, but is doing. And so I appreciate that, man. Hey, we're going to, we're going to, because we appreciate you so much, we're just going to throw you right into our rapid fire round. Are you ready for this? Okay. What I, what I've done, man, is I've done something I've never done before. I'm calling this the front cover round. I just went on here and I pulled five words off of your front cover. And one of them is not Rosemond. Don't worry. <laughs> John, John Rosemond, who wrote your foreword. But I want you to explain briefly what these five words mean in the context of your book, which is Discipleship in the Home. And the subtitle is Teaching Children, and Cha- uh, Teaching Children Changing Lives. So here's the first word, children. They are arrows in the quiver to be shot out from mom and dad to change the world for Jesus Christ. That that is powerful. What's the psalm? What's the psalm attached to that? Do you remember? I can't remember. Oh, I wish you hadn't. Don't, don't do that. I, I know don't. I can't remember it either. It's like, well, we're over 50 years old, so it's okay. We don't have to remember. I have a Bible in front and, of me. And actually, I... it's in your book too, Matt. I mean, you have that yeah. passage in your book. And so uh, <laughs> we, I'll tell you what. I'm really feeling bad now. I'll tell you what. Any guy who's listening to this podcast who sends us the address of that, we will send you some swag. All right? So just reach out to us at info at org. We'll send you some swag for giving us that Bible reference. So how, here's the next one. Are you saying any guy or every guy? You Not included. Any guy not being you. We'll randomly pick one because we might get five. The first guys. one. Okay. <laughs> the first one we see. So hurry up, boys. Anyway, hey, so the next word is teaching. Mm-hmm. Well, I got my PhD in this, so I don't know. I don't know how to be able to figure this one out. Uh, well, teaching ought to be all about learning, and learning is changed behavior, it's not just change of mind. It's changed behavior. So what we want to do with teaching is to, and I, I don't mind the word manipulate, but righteously, with holiness, manipulating the situation that we might see righteous and holy behavioral change. Yeah, what did uh, Tom Landry once say? Leadership is about getting people to do what, getting people to do the things they don't want to do to become what they want to become or something like this. And you use the word manipulation in your book, but I think it's leadership. Yeah, I think I think that's that's good too. I, I, what really irritates me is we've made doing uh, almost an evil word in too much of evangelicalism, and I think doing whatever character quality you have, it eventuates in doing. Eventually, you got to do something about uh, compassion. If you got a compassionate heart, you got to do something compassionate. Or how are you ever going to know you have a compassionate heart? Well, and people always say, "Well, don't judge me." Well, you know, Matthew seven one, do not judge. But in Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus said. You will know them by their fruit. So what's going on here, Jesus? Is this a contradiction? No, it's not. What Jesus is saying is faith produces fruit. Fruitless faith is, James called it, dead faith. Yeah, and I don't know if you remember uh, the the great Robert Trana. He wrote a book called Methodical Bible Study. He kind of lit—everybody sort of lit their fire at at his candle because uh, he kind of popularized that whole thing. Well, he— I had classes with him under seminary and in seminary. And one of the things he said was you do what you believe and you believe what you do. Now, if you just write that down, look at it for a while, it'll just, it just kind of changes the way you think. If you really believe something, you do something about it. And whatever it is you do on a daily basis, that's really what you believe regardless of what's going on with your cognition, with, you know, in, inside your brain. Absolutely. I had a meeting with a guy recently who said he was a Baptist, so you're in Baptist land out there, and uh, so he was clearly not living his faith out, and I was like, Baptist, so you're a Christian? He goes, well, yeah, I'm a Baptist. And as we started talking, and he started unfolding what his philosophy of life was and how he lived his life, I said, oh, you're not a Baptist. Baptists don't believe that. I said, you're a secular humanist. He said, what? I go, yeah, everything you're saying is about the power of positive thinking. I go, you're a secular humanist. You're don't don't call yourself a Baptist anymore. He goes, oh yeah, you're right. I am a humanist, and so because that's how he lived his life. And I think we live in this grace doctrine, cheap grace world. And I think a lot of times guys go, if I just have this mental or this cognitive agreement, I'm in. 
and it's it's just a, and I, and I'm not going to judge whether a guy's in or not. I'm just saying if we if we have cognitive ascension to Jesus, then we need to have ethical a, a life that represents what we're believing for sure. I agree with that 100%. So, hey, the next word is lives. Lives. Well, I think the Lord entrusts us with lives in order to work with, in order to change the world. And 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 so the lives that I'm really interested in are those uh, in my family. Of course, my wife, first of all. I mean, God has entrusted me with her life. And then both of my wife and I, uh, God has entrusted to us six kids. And eventually that would be grandkids and great grandkids. And so I... I just want to recognize that everybody has been entrusted with some lives. Someone would say, well, what if I'm not married? Uh, he's entrusted you with lives at work. He's entrusted you with lives that you relate to. That, that woman that's checking you out at the grocery store, that is a life, at least for this moment, he's entrusted you to. So do good in the moment. Do good with that life. Uh, well, don't you think the single man has also been entrusted with lives that aren't yet born or a marriage he has not experienced yet? I think I mean I think everyone's entrusted with lives. So yeah. yes, absolutely. And I think Paul makes the case that that single guy has been especially entrusted in ways that a married guy can't be, and vice versa. Absolutely. Well, and and you know, young guys listen to the show who want to be married, they they need to understand that they need to protect themselves and protect that wife they're going to marry with the choices they're making now. And so because lives are at stake and you talked about the three things in your life that you struggled with, you know, those three things, a lot of times guys carry those all throughout their marriage because yeah. they are always, they've, they've played around when they're younger and now they're in, they're involved in this. Now I say that I, I also look at my church. Of course I'm a pastor. So I look at the flock that God has entrusted me with, mm -hmm. but I think too often for many of us, it stops about right there. We got, we got a wife, family, church, maybe the people we work with, and it stops there. Instead of saying, God wants an ever-expanding uh, life investment uh, of yours into other people's. So one of the things I you know, I do with my life is to say, how can I get out to the jail on a regular basis? And I do. Every Tuesday night, I'm out at a, a prison uh, preaching the gospel. But I, and I feel like the Lord's entrusted me with these lives to invest in and to touch. Uh, this morning, uh, I was at an abortion clinic, and I feel like God has entrusted me with these lives to be able to say something kind and gentle and helpful and to give them hope and to let them know there's help. You know, one of the things, uh, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but I really feel like out at an abortion clinic that uh, I'm the pro-choicer. They're going in thinking we don't have a choice. I want to oh. be there to say, oh, you've got a choice. We're here. We're going to help you with the life choice that you make if you'll allow us to, if you'll, if you'll let us. So I feel like I'm the pro-choicer outside of an abortion clinic. Oh, that's really good, man. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I'm not a guy who likes to get into politics at all, but I vote pro-life, and that's basically the extent of my political stance. You know, I just think it's that big of a deal. We have a million and a half babies, and their lives are literally on the line and we have to do something about that as believers. And so, uh, and you, you now when you were talking about lives, though, you threw me off because you're talking about lives beyond your flock. But I thought you were going to go somewhere that you went in your book, and that is with this phrase "fourth generation." Can you walk us through those lives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I pray regularly um, for my uh, ever expanding tribe. Uh, I've got children. Uh, one day they're going to have grandchildren, and they're going to have great-grandchildren, and they're going to have great-great-grandchildren. Now, I will never know those great-great-grandchildren. Uh, I might not know very many of the great-grandchildren, honestly. But I want to pray for those because there's something special about that fourth generation. And I want to say, Lord, I'm praying for sanctified marriages, holy marriages. I'm praying for uh, all Christians love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. I'm praying for uh, Christians uh, in the first, second, third, and fourth generation down to my great-great-grandchildren that will be curved out to a lost and hurting world all around the world. So they'll be released to the nations, but they'll be released into the inner cities. They'll be released to the jails. They'll be released to the nursing homes so that those lives will go impact other lives. And so that becomes my continual everyday prayers. I want to make sure that I'm carrying the prayer burden for people I will never know, but there are going to be 
the continuation of my life uh, and more, more specifically Jesus life through me. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I, and I think that's what men do, right? We are called by God to see what nobody else in our family sees. Like we're called to see beyond the scope of tangible reality into this eternal realm and into this generational realm. And that, you know, we know statistically that the curses of the fathers are passed on. We see divorce rates are higher in people who have been divorced or abuse rates or alcoholism rates, you know. And so what we do and the decisions that we make uh, to live a holy and godly life do get passed down to our generation of the generation of those who follow us. That's really powerful, man. So, yeah, and I think the the other thing is true as well. I think righteousness can be handed down. Absolutely. And uh, and so if if you've got holy kids, uh, there's a lot better chance they're gonna you're gonna have some holy grandkids out of all that deal. So. Yeah, I agree 100. percent Especially if the man is committed to Christ. Especially if the yes. man is committed to Christ. So next word is changing. Yeah, well, I think, again, we can be involved in people's lives and change those lives. And all the more, uh, I think there's too many moms and dads around the world uh, and in even even in evangelical culture that just assume that uh, they're here. Uh, I, I don't want them to become chain axe murderers or anything, but they really don't have a specific definition for what they do want to be. And I think it's important that uh, parents get a great idea, a very specific idea of what Jesus wants those kids to be. And then you start building that kind of life into them. And so that's going to create the kind of change I think you not only want to see in your kids, but in the impact of those kids on uh, the world around them. And again, uh, we get back to that third and fourth generation. So I, I believe we're supposed to change uh, people's lives for the glory of God. Yeah, that is. I really appreciate that. We are we are literally preaching to change lives every every day we wake up as a father or grandfather. So I want to jump into your book right now. Uh, your book is called Discipleship in the Home, and on page twenty four of your book, you make a powerful statement. You said this, and I, I really love this. You said, "In everything you do, teach your children about God. Everything." And then later on verse 40, you said something very similar to what you just uh, answered regarding the word changing. You wrote, before you can make a disciple, you need to know what a disciple is. So my question, uh, Matt, is what does the word discipleship mean to you, and wh- and why did you choose that as part of your book title? What What is yeah. discipleship to you? Well, you, uh, you know, of course, off the air just a moment ago, you and I were talking about uh, this great author, Robert Coleman. Uh, he wrote a yes. book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And I think pretty much everybody who's ever read the book says it's a misnamed book. It's not really a book so much about evangelism as it is about discipleship. Yeah. And I had some opportunity to spend some time in seminary with Robert Coleman. And some of the people he influenced, I was very much impacted by a guy named uh, Alan Coppedge, for instance, who's uh, written some books on discipleship. And, and, and so what happened here was they they just invested in me. And so I turn around and say, therefore, my life has been changed. What's the Lord want to do through me to change others' lives? And so I believe discipleship is really um, committing yourself to someone that they might be Christ-like. And I believe that happens through uh, some serious relationships that happen in and beyond Bible study. But uh, there's a there's a Bible study dynamic to it. There's a prayer dynamic to it. I think you ought to go out to meals together. I think you ought to go minister together as much as you can. Uh, but uh, to have these kinds of intense relationships and, you know, most people would say, I think Robert Coleman would certainly say that all the better if those are gender specific uh, Absolutely. relationships, because, you know, like I know, man, you're going to talk with men in a little different way and about some topics that you really do need to talk about that you're not likely to do with women. And, uh, and for us, uh, you know, a good bit of that is sexuality. Uh, it's just hard to have that conversation with a woman. And we need to have that conversation. We have to have that conversation uh, now more than ever uh, in, in the culture that we live in. And so at any rate, I think it's these intense discipleships is trying to help each other become Christ-like. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I, I never understood these guys that are in these mentoring relationships with women. It, it's, a, it's a tremendous guardrail breach when it comes to your marriage. And even if you're not married, there's too much sexuality going on 
floating in the air. There's too much, especially when you go deep into heartfelt conversations. It is a disaster waiting to happen, and do not ever enter that realm. You know, so well, yeah. And discipleship conversations ought to be emotional conversations. Yes, they deal, they deal with feelings. They deal with emotions. How do you handle things? And 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 the truth is, those being emotional, it's it's you know, wow, it's. It ought to be gender specific. Most cases, most of the time, can I see some exceptions to that rule? Probably. But most cases, most of the time, I would definitely, particularly, you know, I have some Zoom conversations, discipleship wise. Yeah. You know? I think you can get away with talking with someone from Africa, like I do. Yeah. Uh, that's a woman that, you know, we'll never see each other. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, even then, you run some risks. Yeah. And uh, so I think you you really hobble. Uh, along if you're not gender specific. Yeah, I agree. I had a guy this morning text me, a 30-year-old guy whose wife just left him said, I want you to teach me what it means to be a man. Now, what I heard was, I want to meet with you once a week, and I want you to disciple and mentor me. I don't know Mm -hmm. if he knows that's what he meant, but that's a huge comment, right? That's, help me, disciple me, walk with me. I'm getting this wrong. Help me get this right. So, well, you know, I I love Robert Coleman, his book uh, has highly impacted my life. I've read it probably no less than 10 times, and I've used it to train our leaders over here. And uh, you, you, you talked about him at the beginning of your book, and then you went back at the end of the book, and you walked readers through Jesus' discipleship or evangelism plan, and you suggested that parents do the same. And so those training points are concentration, which... You change that from Coleman's book. Coleman calls that selection. So concentration on your children or focus. The next one is association, which is being with them, spending time with them. The next one is consecration, which is a fancy word for teaching obedience. The next one is impartation, which is investing your life. Coleman says giving. Jesus gave his life to them. So impartation. Then demonstration, which is model it delegation and supervision you link together, which is basically put them to work, give them a job to do. And then the last one is reproduction. What, what do you think is the biggest challenge for men raising families today of those on that list? Wow, that's interesting. Probably, um, I mean, I think they all kind of flow together. I think where we can do a lot better is at impartation and demonstration. Agreed. To really, to really make sure we're honing in and impartation is I'm building my life into this child or into this you know woman called my wife, and I am demonstrating for them the behavior that I think is going to be oh so important to them in their lives, and uh, I so I don't know I, I think that's probably it and you know reproduction you know biologically that comes delegation supervision that comes but you you want to do it well, and I think that's maybe going to be the thing that we can do it better then we typically do it. So let's concentrate. But I think for me, the impartation and demonstration are going to be really critical for men and their kids. Yeah. And I think most of these guys that are listening to our podcast are guys really working hard to be godly men. They're not males, they're men. And and I th- and when I look at association, you know, and we define that as being with them, I think the guys that are listening to this podcast probably do that well. They probably are going to their sporting events. They are probably, you know, going to their music recitals. They are probably going to their drama presentations. They're probably going to their school events, whatever those events are. But the word impartation, I think, is where guys might struggle, which I think sometimes we confuse our we confuse being with our kids with investing in their in them in their lives and going to your son's baseball game, for example, and being with him there in that space and driving to and from. That is not impartation. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> it's important, but it's not impartation. It's it's playing baseball with your kid. It's fishing with your kid. It's uh, kicking the soccer ball with your kid. And that's a whole nother level of existence right there. Yeah, and that's the bit. You know, I had my son Colton just, I'm really proud of the kid. He replaced his transmission four times, finally got it right, just replaced his uh radio the other day, but he said, Dad, I'm really disappointed in you. I said, what? He said, you changed your oil all through high school and college, but you never taught us kids how to do it. I said, oh man, failure. I, you know, so what, what he's saying is you never, you never modeled that to us and you never demonstrated that to us. And that, and you failed there. 
What is really fascinating here with uh, with that list: concentration, association, consecration, impartation, demonstration, delegation, and reproduction. Is those are things that uh, Robert Coleman came up because he saw that's what Jesus did. Yes. And I was with him one time in his office, uh, Robert Coleman, and I was interviewing him for my dissertation. And at one point during the dissertation, he says, "Matt, reach up there and get that uh, book down." And it was a it was a bound book, so I got it down. And what it ended up being was a uh, training manual for the Conklin Corporation. I have no idea who they are, but he said it became uh, a training manual in so much as they took all of these steps and said, hey, this is the way you train for leadership no matter who you're trying to train. But if you really want a great corporation, you'll do what Jesus did, basically is what they were saying. Now, they, they never used Coleman. They didn't even footnote him. And, uh, they didn't. And by the way, his son, his, <laughs> his son-in-law was very chapped over all that. And he says, Hey, <laughs> you're going to sue him pops. And Coleman says, no, I'm not going to sue him. I'm just glad someone's picking up on it. The church isn't. Yeah, for sure. I just thought, Whoa. Then what he would do in his classes is he would say the, the one of the best demonstration of these things is from a book by Douglas Hyde. I don't know if you've ever read this before. Uh, a book called Dedication and Leadership. And it's about a communist uh, in England that converted Catholic. And he wrote back to say, you know, uh, I'm no longer communist, but I got to hand it to them. They make disciples and they make disciples pretty much. They didn't say this, but pretty much along the lines of Robert Coleman. Wow. He says, and the church ought to pick up oh, what communism is doing. Now, this is way back when. All right. Yeah, totally. Uh, when it looked like communism was taking over the world. But I mean, at that point he says, they've got a great discipleship program and their, their, their worldview is horrible. But as far as making disciples, wow. And, and so we had to read that in seminary as a textbook, Dedication and Leadership by Douglas Hyde. I recommend it. Wow. Uh, but the, the whole point is this stuff works no matter who you use it. It worked for Christ in making disciples. It works for you in working with your kids it worked for communism, and guess what? It works for a corporation. Yeah, and the it's cool, fascinating stuff. Well, the cool thing about Coleman's book, in fact, we need to provide a link to pick up Coleman's book. We'll do that in our show notes. You know, his book is only a hundred pages. It's a tiny little book. I mean, it, I it takes two hours to read. It's so the principles are so simple, but it's just deeply profound. And you've read it how many times? Oh, I'm saying ten, but it's maybe thirty, because you can just and, skim and through every, it. Yeah, and every time you read it, though, you find something that you kind of forgot or something a little bit new or something a little bit, oh. Well, even uh, though it's so that, simple, but back to your book, because you did something in your book that I, I really did appreciate. The first thing Jesus did, the first thing he did is he selected the 12. That's what he did, yeah. right? So selection was important. Well, when you're giving birth to children, you're having kids, you don't really have a chance of selecting, really. You know, you're just, they're coming out and they're there. So you changed that to concentration, which I, I I thought Matt was powerful that you changed that word selection to concentration, and I think Coleman would have appreciated it in the context of family. Can you walk us through why that word concentration is so important as the first word in this process, and why you chose that over selection? Yeah, well, first off, if you want to change the world, most of us want to put out a podcast and a TV show, right? That's how we're going to change the world. Instead you know of saying, no, you know, maybe the best, I'm not saying you can't change the world that way. And you guys, I'm sure, are changing lives. But the best way to change a life is to say, let me try to impart the life that Jesus has given me. And let me try to impart that in a few people. That's what Jesus did. He didn't, listen, he didn't try to, the 5,000 showed up for some, for some food, but they didn't show up at the cross. And so what Jesus was trying to do with his methodology is build his life into a few. And by the way, wasn't totally successful in that. But he tried to build his life into a few that they might turn around and make disciples of other people. And so I think that word concentration basically says the best work we're going to do in our life isn't the thing we do with a newspaper column like I've had or a talk radio program like I used to have or a podcast like you guys have. The best way to change the world is who Jesus has given you an opportunity to concentrate on. And that's going to be the few people around you. Take those people seriously. Build your life into them. That's a powerful, powerful statement. We're going to 
Come back in just a second. We're going to hear from our sponsor. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with the mission to inspire men towards becoming their best version and changing their world. Every man in the arena matters. Our Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men is a great way to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Because of the passion to see men get out of the bleachers and into the arena, Jim wants to offer some powerful resources to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Give us your email and we'll send you a free PDF version of the field guide. It's Jim's 365-day bathroom book for men. It's the study of manly words in the Bible, illustrated with great stories. This is also a great resource for all our arena men. We'll also add you to our weekly equipping blast, including Jim's personal blog, prayer requests, and weekly boots on the ground mission. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those anonymous voices in the bleachers pleading for you to enter the fight? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. Well, you know, it's interesting, Matt, uh, and I'm not offended by the podcast comment at all because it is true. Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all of his, these people that are following him left, and he turned to Peter and goes, uh, you guys going to leave me too? <laughs> you know, so Jesus himself was constantly pruning the people down. And and I, and for us with our podcast, so we have a podcast. We also have a uh, forum. We're getting ready to launch a brand new forum on our website. Have thousands of men on the forum. They represent over 80 nations. But that, and that is really good. And good things happen there. But the power of what we're doing with the men in the arena is saying, hey, we want to launch teams of men in our communities where guys are sitting in a coffee shop going through the Bible and working through this stuff together, and then after their time together is done, we want those guys to split up and start new teams. And that's where the power is, because the podcast is great. Guys, if you're listening to this podcast, this is great, but it's this is the top of our funnel. This is the, the base of the mountain, so to speak. As you climb the mountain of manhood, we've got to get you into discipleship relationships with other men. What do you think? Yeah, well, and I've lived long enough. Uh, again, I've had the talk radio program. I've had the newspaper column and the statewide daily. And when I, when I was in the midst of those things, you really think, man, I'm, I'm really changing the world. I'm really doing some great things. I'm important. People recognize you in restaurants. This is really cool. But I've lived long enough to know that the greatest impact my life is, is going to have and has had is on those six kids that has been in my nuclear family. And furthermore, uh, the smaller groups that I've had over, over years teaching here at the school. But I'm going to tell you, even that pales in comparison to the impact we can have on the children that are in our home. Patrick Morley said, it's about those people who will be crying at your funeral. And that is true. But I want to jump in to something that was really powerful in your book. I love the Coleman stuff, and I'm a huge fan of Coleman. But in your book, you you give guys a tool. And actually, I did this. We were basically first-generation Christians, so we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. But we did this not knowing what this was. And uh, on page 30, you wrote this. After our oldest child's first birthday, so you're getting real. You have six kids. Your oldest one has just turned one. After our oldest child's first birthday, my wife and I began to consider the character qualities, skills, and behaviors we wanted to build into his life before he left home around 18. This exercise didn't take long, but has proven to be one of the most profitable ventures we have undertaken as parents. And this is a huge statement, and so I want you to tell us about this thing. Uh, I've never heard this phrase before. I've never heard this taught before or spoken about, and I think that our guys who are driving to work right now need to pull over and write these three words down. I think this is a life-changing moment for our guys listening. Tell us about the age 18 list and what yeah. what value it brought to your children. All right. Well, first off, I came home. I'd read some research that Dobson had in one of his books. And it was basic research out of some California researchers that said, if you don't do these things in your child's life before the age of 18 months, boy, you've missed major opportunities and wow. windows are going closed on your kid's brain. I thought, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, he was 17 months at the time, my kid. Uh, Caleb was his name. <laughs> we need to hurry. And so so I, I said, sweetheart, 
I want to read you this list. This is important. And she looks up and says, no. <laughs> she's, she's a perfectionist, right? So she didn't want to hear the list. I thought, hmm. So for the, maybe the only time in our marriage, I, I turned into a sensitive husband and went quiet <laughs> and, and thought, what is, what is it next that I ought to say? Because I'm going to say something. <laughs> I said, so about a half hour later, I said, hey, sweetheart, what if you take a piece of paper and I take a piece of paper? And let's write down what we want Caleb, our firstborn, to be like when he's age 18. And so she says, okay. And uh, she wrote down a list. I wrote down a list. We put the list together. We call it our age 18 list. So we, we put a line down the middle. And on the left side, we had some, you know, we were able to take her list and my list and say, here are some categories. On the right side of the page, we said parental responsibilities. That is what we have to do to make the list come to fruition. And so, uh, I don't know if you want to go into the list, but I mean, for instance, uh, we want our kids, uh, let's go down to the sex category, can we? Uh, we want our kids to be virgins when they get married. I'm, you know, that's uh, decreasingly happening today Absolutely. In, in the culture. So to make it happen, we've got to take specific uh, uh, measures in order to make these things come alive. So we got to model a loving, respectful relationship with each other. We need to answer sex questions openly and unabashedly. We may, need to make sure that we have the talk with them, and that should come from us, not the public school. Yes. Uh, or any school, or, you know, I, I learned it from my friend Billy, you know, yeah. <laughs> when I was in sixth grade. Well, I, I later found out Billy didn't have a clue what he was talking about, but that's where I got my sex education from was behind some building and Billy was telling me all about it. Well, I want to get to my kid before Billy does. Yes. So those are the kinds of things. And I got other things listed here, but it also includes how are we going to let our children approach dating? And you need to have a theology of dating going in your family. Yep. And for us, we just said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to let our kids date. We're going to let them, we're going to free them from that burden and just say, have fun go in groups. We're not saying stay away from girls. We're just saying, let's not pair up and start uh, recreationally kissing or recreationally fondling or whatever else we're going to do recreationally. Let's be liberated from that. And let's just have fun. Let's build friendships. When you get in college, let's start exploring marriage a little bit more. And uh, we got kids getting married, you know, about a year from now, explored it well. And we love this girl. But the point is, I think he knew how to handle himself because he'd had a a lot of wonderful friendships in high school. So that's the kind of thing. We want our kids to be virgins upon marriage. We don't want them to have a healthy concept about how to treat and be treated by the opposite gender. And we want them to know how to make a good selection of a lifelong spouse. That ought to be something I train them in. My wife trains them in. We're not just hoping that somebody somewhere somehow uh, you know, feeds them good information. So those, that's a kind of, that's a category. We have, we have spirituality category there. We got money, interesting enough, because we don't want our kids to carry debt their whole lives. And so we want to make sure we teach them about biblical literacy, uh, evangelism, the poor. Now, the Bible talks a lot about the poor and does it in such a way that, that you better be doing a good thing there. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, health, skills, self-image. Anyway, these characteristics, though, what we try to do here is to say, let's make them measurable and behavioral. Let's, because it's too easy to say, I want my kid to be loving. Well, what does that mean? Who do you want them to love? Yeah. I mean, so, and how do they love them? So make them measurable, make them specific, and make them behavioral. And so we had this list. And uh, we are about ready. Our sixth child is leaving. Uh, to go to college this, uh, this fall. And I can say by the grace of God that uh, they've lived the list. They've, they've achieved it all. And frankly, a lot more than we ever imagined they would. And I think it's because we made a list. You can't make a disciple if you do not know what a disciple is. And if you don't have an idea what a disciple is, you need to know this. The world does. That is a true statement. Hollywood has... <laughs> A plan a for your kid. Yeah. Madison Avenue has a plan for your kid. And I just want to say, I'm not going to let them have my kid. I'm going to have an alternative list. 
and I'm going to let Jesus build some things in me so I can build these things into my child. Now, I love this uh, age 18 list, and I have on here 11 items that you guys have crafted, and you listed them very well. And so our guys are driving right now. They're like, well, gosh, I'm not going to pull over. Uh, but what? So what would you say? I, spirituality is your first thing, and it's the thing that you have the most attached to it. Is it safe to say that of the 11 qualities that you're after on your age 18 list, that spirituality would be the overarching over all of them? Yeah, it colors everything else, yeah, no it, question. Okay, so it stands alone. So you have... Your, your spirituality, which is you know giving your life to Jesus, living for Jesus, that's the overarching. Then you have these other 10. Of these 10, what would you say, hey, mom and dad, you cannot get these wrong of those 10. Are there two or three in there? You're going, these are like, these, you know, so you have you know the one spirituality of Jesus, and then Jesus had his three disciples. So what are the next three that you would say, are these three are the ones you really need to get right if you're going to get anything else right besides spirituality? Number one, they need to know how to change the oil. Number two. <laughs> that hurt, man. That yeah, hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. So I think over the next two pages, I think these are pretty important. Yeah. Uh, money. Yes. Agreed. All right. Uh, sex. Yep. Uh, and, and things on money are things like uh, how to spend, how yep. to save, and how to stay out of debt. And how to give. And well, thank you. I don't, I'm yeah. I'm shocked I didn't say that. Well, you're uh, a pastor, so I just I got your back. <laughs> well, it's 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 on it's on the category though. No, uh, I know underneath the list. Yep. It's right there. Yep. So sex would be another one. A biblical literacy. You want them to know their Bible. You want to teach it to them. And there's some great tools out there to do that with. Uh, intellect. So I want to make sure that they're getting everything that I think it's important for them to have regardless of whether the schooling system is teaching it or not. So I, what I'm about ready to say is going to blow minds. And I, I appreciate it. My, my, my wife is brilliant. I'm not, <laughs> I'll just say it flat out. Uh, but my wife knows Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and French. What? Wow. I wanted my children before they went to college to know Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Uh, my wife could ensure that happened. My wife did ensure that happened. So that's one thing that they're not going to get in the schooling system. No. Now, I don't anticipate anybody listening. Uh, I don't know. There are going to be some people listening that could do that. But yep. on the whole, yeah. that's just special to us. But it's very special to us. There's all kinds of other things in the intellect. But the basic thing with intellect is read, 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 and read to your children. And don't wait until they're five. I mean, in the womb. We were reading to our kids in the womb. You think that's just crazy. Yeah. If you're crazy enough to do it in the womb, you're going to be crazy enough to do it when they're crying at age one and a half. Yep. So uh, evangelism, you got to share your faith. And, uh, you know, this, I think for too many people, this is off the charts, but the poor. You need to practice ministry with the hungry, the imprisoned, the elderly, the diseased. And so early on, my children knew we go to the nursing home because Jesus is at the nursing home. We want to go minister to him. And as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Mm. And so I want to make sure that uh, they know their dad does this. They know their mom does this. This is the way you roll. This is what Christians do. So I, those would be the key ones, I think. Uh, the rest of these are kind of nice, uh, very important, but fillers. Yeah, I think that Yeah, a lot of it, when you, when you have that overarching spirituality, a lot of those kind of fall into there, but some of those other, some of the ones like money, sex, and health, those are things that kind of stand outside of there a little bit uh, to me and stand alone. And I think this is interesting, really good and powerful. I think this age 18 list is critical. And we're not saying, hey, mom, dad, use this list on page 30. If you pick up this book, this book will really help you with the list. But you guys come up with the list that you have as parents and your identity. And I'm sure. It'll be very, very similar to the list that we just have here from Matt. So, hey, yeah, so, sometimes, yeah. sometimes people say, I, I disagree with that. And I think, fine. Yeah. Make your own list. Make your own list. So, so one of the things I have here that's kind of controversial is uh, health. And it's pair back the excitement exhibited toward favorite ball teams. Well, that just rubs people all kinds of wrong ways. But I'm thinking, I think we, I think sport has become a God in this country. 
and I just want to be very careful with it. I don't mind they have a favorite ball team, but let's not go crazy over this thing. Let's be very careful with how much we're throwing our lives into athletics. So we have a mantra in our family. We do it for fun and we do it for exercise only. When it becomes more than fun and more than exercise, then we start having a problem with it. And my children have done a good job of keeping that perspective. Yeah, we really do worship sports and people who are athletes. And some of these people have a lot of problems and are struggling through life. And just because you can jump high or throw a ball far or, or hit a guy hard in the field, I'll tell you what. I mean, I had a dream about my college football days just last night. I told my wife, I think I have post-traumatic stress disorder. But uh, it's just a game. And when you're following well, Jesus, you've got to put it in perspective. Yeah, and let me say that a good bit of this list was looking over my life and noting weaknesses yeah. and strengths. But the weaknesses I wanted to fill in, and I'll remind you, I'm a you know, trial for the Olympic team. I mean, I'm an NCAA All-American. And I noticed how much sports gobbled up my spiritual and emotional life. And I thought, I'm not going to let my kids be gobbled up like that. So I looked at the weakness of my life growing up and, and created a category to help with that weakness. Well, I just was uh, on the phone with a friend of mine today, yesterday who lives out here in Oregon and was actually in Chicago with his junior and high school daughter for a basketball tournament. And I just think, how many dollars... Are we going to gobble up frivolously? How how much and 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 how much time? And then the other thing is, if I've got four kids, let's say, and one's an exceptional athlete, how much time is spent on that one particular kid's sport, where the others are neglected? And then as Christians, what I see is all of these things happen on a lot of these things happen on Sundays, and so a lot of these families that are very engaged in sports, Christian families, are not to be seen inside churches because. They have to go to a game, and I think they got to be really, really careful with what they're doing. Because unlike with all of the parents, I had a guy tell me a couple days, a couple months ago, that the there's a particular girls team here in our town had five Division One athletes on that team, and I'm like, yeah, right, <laughs> you know, everyone's a Division athlete until they aren't, and so I, yeah. you know, so what we're talking about here is we're saying, hey, make this list, make disciples. And, and the question that I have then, and we're going to dive into this, is what's the platform for doing that? How do I do that, and what's the platform? I'm in the stress bubble. I'm working hard. I've got kids doing sports. And so you, you, can't, you have a, another thing that you brought up in your book, which I thought was the second most powerful concept in your book. And we would call ours different than what you called yours, but we called ours breakfast as a family. You called right. yours dinner table disciple making. So when my right. kids were growing up, I made them a hot breakfast every morning because I love hot breakfast, and we would sit down at the table, and we would have our devotional time and our family time, and I'll be honest with you, Matt, it got ugly sometimes. Sometimes the kids were fighting, sometimes they were crying because they were tired, but we did it, and we did it for 20 years, and you've done this dinner table time, dinner table disciple making. Explain this with us, and explain how you had to fight to make this a value. Well, back in the ancient days when the uh, Jews were in exile, as they're leaving Jerusalem, running for their lives, <laughs> they're having conversations. And the conversation went like this. The temple's destroyed. Now where do we worship? Yeah. And they decided, well, let's go ahead and make our homes the miniature temple. And they said, well, okay, so what's the altar in the home? The altar in the home is going to be the dinner table. That's where we're going to bless our kids. That's where we're going to teach them scripture. That's where we're going we're to sing the songs of the faith. And what's amazing is the, the Jewish community has done that pretty regularly through the years when they've been at their best. So have Christians, but we are today getting away from it, yep. and I think to our own detriment. There's a number of studies that show that children who eat dinner with their families are less likely to get involved with drugs and alcohol than those who do not. They get better grades, exhibit less stress, eat better. You know, Just all kinds of really great benefits from the research if you'll eat together five times a week. And fewer and fewer and fewer families are doing that. So what we did, which said, well, as long as we're going to stop and eat together, should we do some holy things together? So we just set down a list. And I, I would I recommend everybody not only make an age 18 list, but just make a list of five things you want to do when you're together at your dinner table. Ours is a little bit more than five. But nonetheless, it's basically say, let's let, this was the dad reading to the children time. So I'd take some. Uh, a Tolkien book or a C.S. Lewis book and read to them. 
uh, usually uh, some kids level. Then we'd sing together. Then I have a catechism in the book, the Sopship of the Home, that we'd go over. Then some memory work. But then, you know, we basically had a list of things that we would do. The last thing is I would pray over my kids and let them know that they've got a great future pouring their life into a lost world. So we just wanted to make sure that that's always on their mind. And that became dinner table discipleship. But we have a very carefully uh, carefully planned thing that we did. And I got to tell you, not all the time does dad want to do this stuff. And I guarantee you not all the time do the children want to do this stuff. But if you'll do it anyway, those five, six, seven things at the dinner table, maybe two or three, just if you'll do those over and over and over again, you'll find that imprints something holy on their hearts, their lives, and their imaginations for decades to come. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, Matt, I don't know about you, but we you you said you homeschooled your kids. We public schooled our kids. And so we had to we had to fight for it. Oh boy. I mean, honestly, yeah. it was like uh, that's why I got up every morning for 20 years and made a hot breakfast for the kids. Those kids never had cereal. It was eggs and meat for 20 years, and it was sitting them down, get down here, and they would come down. And I'll tell you, we had to fight to get in, but you know what? It became so routine that Monday through Friday, the kids just came down, and that's what we did for years. And when I say Monday through Friday, we missed one here and there. But for the most part, we were faithful for 20 years. And I think this is an art that parents have to go back to, and Christian parents need to make this a value. Somehow, somewhere, be creative, but five meals a week together minimum. We did probably two or three dinners together as well. But because as the kids got older, they were in sports, it was a little bit more difficult, but it was so important. It was so important. So what would you, what would you, what would you recommend for a guy who hasn't done this yet? They're kind of scattered. How, how does he get started in having these meals together? Well, I just uh, make sure you have it. Now, make sure you have five yeah. meals a week. Yeah. Figure out where they're going to be and basically make it the most important time of your week. This is family discipleship time. We're only going to take, you know, if you just do five or 10 minutes at the beginning of a meal, that's all it takes. Uh, but, you know, if you just did, I, I, I would read to them. Don't have to do that, but just kind of something I wanted to do. So they heard dad read uh, that they found out is important dad thing to do to read to the kids. Then we'd sing a hymn and then we do some memory work, you know, an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage. Uh, if you just did that. Wow. What an impact that will have on your kids. If just do some reading to them, have a hymn. By the way, we purchase hymn books. And I got a contemporary church, so we only do contemporary songs. But I said, but I want my kids to know those old hymns. I guess that's a geezer in me or something. <laughs> I want them to know Old Rugged Cross, by golly. I want them to know that great Wesleyan hymn. I want them to know that Lutheran hymn. I want them to know. So I'm not saying it sounds that good. That's not important. Who said yeah. that was important? Yeah, for Just sure. Go ahead and bellow it out. <laughs> now, oh, that might not be important to somebody. Fine. Don't do it. But it was important to us. So we would just do, if you just do two or three of these things and make sure at the end of it all, they hear your blessing over their lives. Don't just say, hey, bless this food. Say something about them. Mm. And I would usually say something about all of them, but I'd usually pick one of them out. Jesus, I want to pray for Hannah right now. And I want to pray, Lord, that you'll send her to some hard place in the world because, Jesus, she's going to be able to take it. <laughs> By your grace, she's going to go to that hard place and change that world for Jesus Christ. So I, I pray things like that over my children specifically. And then at the end, we'd, I'd, I'd say something like, Jesus, we love you with all of our, and they'd all chant, hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our mites. I'm not sure there's such a thing as mites, but anyway, all of our mites. <laughs> and I said, amen, and let's eat. Oh, and so that awesome. was just kind of a fun family ritual that I really do think built something into them. Well, what I, what I love about that is is you're praying, and this is what men need to see. We need to see two things, well, multiple, but here are the two things I'm hearing from you. We need to see that each of our children, in your book, you talk about the different blessings you prayed over your kids. Each of our children are different, wonderfully, beautifully different. They're different, and and each of our children need our blessing. So we need to see that difference 
in their lives. So see the difference in their lives and speak the blessing over their lives. And that's what I see. And that's it's so important that our, you know, because I have three sons, so I'm, and they're always competing, right? They're sons, they're brothers. But saying, <laughs> hey, here's how you guys are different. And here's where you're so strong. And here's where one has what the other one doesn't have. And this is a beautiful thing. And speaking this into their lives so they can see a view of their future. And so, hey, we're running really short on time here. This has really flown by, and I appreciate it. But before we get uh, before we close out, I do want to ask you about this one thing in your book. And you mentioned it briefly, but I think a problem a lot of times in the church is we, we end up raising, you know, your book is all about disciple-making, discipling our children. I see a lot of times in the church, and when I was in ministry as a pastor of a local church, youth pastor in a local churches, I saw parents raising great, moral, upstanding atheists in the church. Mm. They were functional atheists because a lot of Christian parents have bought into this, I'm going to call it garbage, it's what I think it is, called self-esteem teaching. Can you talk about how that has been woven into the church and why that's so dangerous to teach it's this so self-esteem dangerous. garbage? Wow, no kidding. It's, 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 it's dangerous. You want to expect the best from them and expect the best. However, I, I, was, I, I read this, uh, it was years ago, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. It was in USA Today. I've never been able to find it. But the research was done on the who, who has the best self-esteem in America. What, what group of people? You know what they found out? Prisoners. Yeah, I read that. <laughs> the best self-esteem in America, uh, the incarcerated. I'm thinking, whoa. So this, this drivel of, uh, hey, you know, you're great. You're outstanding. Let's give every kid a trophy. Uh, let's not even get into that. But anyway, no, I'm a big fan of participation trophies. Everybody who listens to the show knows yeah, how much I love, love, I love those things. They're great in the yeah. trash. So- <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, anyway, so <laughs> it's just it's just a bunch of drivel. Now, yeah, I do think linking their worth to God, and that God has extraordinary things He wants you to do in this world. Trust and obey Him. Get ready for that exciting day, and uh, I think that's appropriate. But this whole thing of uh, you're just better than everybody else—it's obvious to me—is just drivel and the self-esteem heresy of the uh, social sciences world has really been detrimental, I think, to uh, our American culture, uh, but certainly for Christian discipleship. Yeah, and I think it, it's walking a fine line between what I call cheap grace or grace, grace doctrine. Oh, do whatever you want. Jesus took care of it. Hey, that's a true statement, but hey, we didn't get reality here. We need a real picture of who we are in the context of who our holy and transcendent God is. And so, hey, Matt, thank you so much uh, for coming on our show today and sharing your wisdom. Hey, guys, uh, be looking at our Equipping Intent. We're going to have Matt back. He's going to talk about something else in his book that we didn't have time to get into, which is the television. You're going to love that equipping episode. But, guys, let's get our boots on the ground. What's next? What's the next step you're going to take? What action will you step into based on what you've heard today? And here it is. We want you to get together with your wife, or if you're a single dad, sit down alone and reflect. But we want you to craft an age 18 list. What do you want your children to look like at age 18? What do you want to invest in them now and build those action steps into that? Like Matt said, he had 11 categories. Yours may be different, but what categories do you want to see your children have complete victory over? So make your age 18 list with your wife for your children and begin to work on that ASAP. We'll also post our boots on the ground action item in our weekly equipping blast that you can subscribe to at meninarena.org when you grab a free version of our bathroom book for men. Make sure you head on over at the same point and to go to Facebook, join our Men in the Arena Forum for Men. We also have our website forum for those guys who do not have Facebook. So you can go check that out. That's awesome. That's just launching this month. And guys, before we close, did you know that Men in the Arena is a nonprofit, crowdfunded? faith-based organization that exists to inspire men to become their best version because of the large group of generous donors. We call them champions. We are able to freely offer this podcast, Equipping Blast, discussion forums, plus all of our resources are free for missionaries and men in underdeveloped nations. And you can find out more about how you can support this ministry at meninarena.org. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. 
get in the game, get dirty, make your age 18 list, grind it out, and be a man. Men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's bathroom book for men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.